0: Hello, everybody. This is your host Geert. I am very pleased today uh, to be speaking to Dr. Anna Sergi. Uh, welcome, Anna.
1: Hello.
0: Hi. Um, so Anna Sergi, she holds a PhD in Sociology and uh, she has a specialisa- specialization in Criminology from the University of Essex. Uh, and she's uh, where she is currently a senior lecturer in courses on organized crime, security and on globalization. Sorry,
1: I'm sorry,
0: specialise- I'm a professor now. You're a professor now? Oh, I'm yes. so sorry. <laughs> I mean,
1: it's all right. I should have, I should have told you before. It's, in between the book, I managed to get a promotion. So. There we go. Well, guys.
0: congratulations. Sir.
1: There we go. So sorry, you have to do that again. All right.
0: No, 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 that's fine. Professor Anna Sergi, um, so uh, she uh, specializes in mafia studies, uh, cross-border policing of organized crime, and uh, more recently on drug importations through seaports. Um, and she's published ex- extensively in the several renowned journals and authored uh, four books any uh, additional updates uh, besides the professorship
1: Well my next book is coming up uh, in two days <laughs> so yes so we'll you yeah, that will be a different kind of product but still with Bristol University Press so.
0: Great okay well we'll yes. go, get, go into that uh, maybe yes. at the end of the talk would be uh, yes. would be nice um, so Maybe, um, um, oh, sorry, yeah. So today we we will be discussing with uh, Professor Sergi um, the, the book that she co-authored with Alexandria Reed, Luca Storti, and Marlene Easton. And it's called Ports, Crime and Security, Governing and Policing Seaports in a Changing World. Um, maybe to start off with, could you tell us a bit more about how you came to the, the, the your t- current topic of study in general, um, what originally drew your interest to, to international crime and to, uh, to see ports?
1: Yes, so I've been working on organized crime for, well, for a decade, over a decade now, and um, ports have always been one of those things that started appearing everywhere I went. Uh, for a simple reason, I research mafias and mafia mobility, and the Italian mafias uh, I research are particularly active in cocaine trade. So, whenever it's about cocaine trade, uh, you hear the respondent A, police officer, or law enforcement B, um, border agent, who will tell you, well, you really need to look at the port, and that the Seventh billion times that people tell, told me you really need to look at the port, then I started, I like, okay, maybe I should look at the port. And this was specifically started with Melbourne, because I was there researching um, the Calabrian Drangheta, the mafia in Australia, and eventually the, the port kept coming up. Um, as something that was increasingly relevant to understand the movement of this group. And so I built together a project. I reached out to my colleague uh, Luca Storti first. Um, uh, Luca and I have been working together already on some other mafia related stuff. Luca is an economic sociologist. So it was. I thought it was a good uh, combination because obviously, as a criminologist, approaching port is a very daunting experience. Ports are incredibly complex. Uh, and so you do need someone with some knowledge of economics or, uh, in that case, economic sociology to start understanding things beyond uh, crime, because the port obviously is a lot more than just crime. So that's where Luca and I started doing this project. We won a grant. Um, so we did the first part of the research. And in this research, then we met uh, what eventually became our next um, colleagues. So Alexandria was, uh, at the time um, I met her because she was doing a research on free ports in the UK. So she was very interested in uh, issues of um, yeah, port security in the realm of free ports and the new proposal for free ports in the U- in Brexit Britain, essentially. Brexit England uh, and Marlene instead had done already a lot of research on, um, on ports, specifically Antwerp uh, but from a very specific perspective which was the one of public private management. So she was looking at the public private partnerships uh, in the port of Antwerp uh, so mainly, mainly police uh, and private sector. So we did uh, meet in many occasions, we ran a workshop together and from the workshop we seven different ports and 14 people from various countries, we essentially decided, okay, you know what, we need to put this down um, somehow on paper. But it felt like it couldn't be done without each of us having keeping their own specialism and their own voice And this is why the book is uh, short, but it has, uh, which is always a good thing, by the way, I think, for a book to be short, uh, dense and short, but it also has a four-author, it's a four-author book, because we all contributed with one chapter, we all commented on each other's chapter, and we then together brought the introduction and the conclusion, and I was the one overseeing the the project, but it was eventually a four-people effort, because we bring together political economy, economic sociology management studies um, and criminology so it, it couldn't have done we couldn't have done it in another way because ports are all of this um, so that's why we decided essentially to do it this way
0: I see I see um, and, and maybe to uh, to go back uh, to, to Melbourne what was exactly the, the study that you did down there what grasping? Can...
1: <laughs> in Melbourne, it was so I was looking at um, the differentiation, well, the diversification of criminality between um, Italy and uh, Australia when it comes to the Calabrian mafia. And uh, one of the first things that anyone learns about the Calabrian mafia in Australia is that they are linked to what is the currently still the world's largest ecstasy bust, which is you know dubbed by the media this way. Um, It's 4.4 tons of MDMA that arrived in the port of Melbourne from Italy uh, in tomato cans, because obviously we are apparently uh, Italian that way. Um, And it was one of the biggest operations that Australian law enforcement did uh, in 2008. Yes. So in 2007, 2008, it was basically one of the biggest operations that Australian Federal Police, Victoria Police, border agents did in Australia. Um, and it was about 4.4 tons of MDMA and 160 kilos of cocaine arriving in tomato tins uh, from Italy um, for a network, of um, a criminal network, uh, that was mostly related to the Calabrian Mafia. Uh, so that's when essentially I had to go and talk about the port and how eventually this whole operation up, uh, happened because it involved undercover agents. It involved a number of resources. And that's when I first glimpsed into the port and I realized that this was a little bit it needed to be explored a little bit better because it just it, it, it's not that easy. Uh, it might seem easy, but it's not that easy for a criminal group to um, just exploit a port, such a port like Melbourne. Melbourne is a gigantic port, it's uh, the biggest port of Australia. So obviously the ways in which this happens are not um, that intuitive. So that's essentially when I decided, okay, maybe I, let me start looking at other ports and eventually I found that the Calabrian Mafia, I already knew this, but um, it became very obvious uh, that their um, relationship with ports <laughs> was kind of uh, special in a way. So already in Calabria and in Italy more generally. So that's why I started, I included a port in uh, Genova. Uh, I then decided to move to uh, the US, uh, in the, the port of New York and New Jersey, also because I the, the, have a specific they had a special history with the waterfront and the mob. Uh, let's call it the mob. And then Montreal, because I already had contacts in Canada, so it was easy enough to do research in Canada for me at that time. Uh, so and, and Liverpool, because I, I had to <laughs> include a UK-based port uh, in order to get the funding. <laughs> so Liverpool seemed to be also the most interesting one in terms of criminal uh, organisations, uh, activity at the port, especially in the 80s, 90s. Uh, yeah, so it seemed logical as well uh, to, to include Liverpool. But yeah, it all started with 4.4 tons of MDMA at the Port of Melbourne, uh, arriving in tomato teens.
0: And did it, uh, because, uh, OK, Liverpool was perhaps an oblig- obligatory choice, but uh, did it uh, in the end uh, give you any good results?
1: Uh, Liverpool was difficult uh, and it, helped, it it kind of opened up a whole other um, set of problems in the UK, which I'm trying to figure out as we speak. So Liverpool was chosen for two reasons. One, because the call was specifically focused on the UK and it wanted to bring in comparative research to support UK policy. Uh, and it was just before Brexit, uh, so it was it, may, it was kind of meaningful for me to include um, a topic that was completely overshadowed by the Brexit talks, which is port security and trafficking illicit trade. Uh, but it, it also showed me how impossible it is to do research in, in the ports in England. And I say England and not the UK, because the rest of the UK has different ports regimes Ports' ownerships are, um, uh, let's say, of different nature in the UK. In England, they are completely private. Ports in England are privatized in land and in um, concession. So that the people, companies, corporations who run the terminals are also the ones who own the terminal land, which is kind of a unique thing. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. It's a minority of cases around the world um, are like this. So this essentially means that you can't enter the port not even with um, the police or with the border agents, uh, which is normally the way I go in. Um, so it's, it's uh, basically you have to ask the private um, sector, whoever is running the port, and they might refuse you. They did uh, not refuse me in Liverpool, but um, their data was rather meaningless uh, to me, because obviously their intent is not necessarily to talk about cocaine or organized crime but to show how fantastic the port is and how well it's running and how you know without crime and the crime is a thing of the past
0: and so these okay so the uk is a sort of specific outlier in this sense but you already mentioned the public-private partnerships that are usually in place in the in the ports uh, could you describe those a tiny bit and also indicate why, um, why that makes it especially such a complex uh, environment?
1: Yes, so this uh, the the topic of port security is the one that we need to introduce here. So port security is a weird beast. Uh, And the chapter in the book that deals with this has been mainly curated by um, Marlene. It's chapter three, but obviously also in the chapter I curated, which was the one about policing, there is some overlap uh, about that for simple reason, um, which is not simple at all, actually. (laughs) So port security is something that grew out of... uh, 9-11s as a lot of national security, uh, let's say, uh, crisis uh, that we had after 9-11. So it's a regulation, it's an international set of laws uh, which imposed on every port around the world to um, obey certain standard rules uh, to secure the premises of the port. But securing the premises of the port means essentially making sure that there is no terror attack, no infrastructure meltdown uh, in terms of cyber, meltdown or physical meltdown no no stowaways God forbid we have stowaways in ports Uh, and remotely also criminal activity but in a very vague sense not quite clear what it means and this is normally attributed to the whoever is running the port terminal, which is usually a private, uh, in 80% of the cases in the world, it's usually the private sector. So someone who has the lease over the land for, let's say, 40, 50 years, and they, they manage the terminal that way. Uh, but eventually, port security is also a matter of, uh, even if it's privatised, it's also a matter for the public sector to worry about. Because obviously, if you ever have a risk of terror attack or a stove way or a criminal activity in port, and the land on which the port sits remains public land, so remains somehow uh, leased to the private sector, then obviously it is still land that is policed by law enforcement that run in the place uh, of this of you know that we are talking about in the context whether this is national police, local police, federal police that's beyond well that depends on the port essentially on where, where the port is and how the port management is organized in that specific country but there is that, that essentially brings in as a necessary step a way of talk talking they need to talk. the private sector needs to talk with the public sector and vice versa. The police needs to be able to enter the port to carry out their investigations or their arrest or their seizures. And the, the private sector needs to be able to call on the police or whoever else, law enforcement, for support. In all this, we are often forgetting, but it became very obvious in the research that many of the ports we looked at, especially big seaports, large container seaports, are also uh, borders. So obviously this means that commodities as much as people from abroad uh, come in through certain gates which are ports. and this also means that you will have border management and border authorities and customs in ports. And usually, the role of custom is the one that is the most important uh, in the m- daily management of ports because customs is the one who is usually allowed to open containers, who is usually allowed to check on people, on cars, on ships. They are the one who somehow manage the border. So that is, uh, it can happen in different ways, each country has their own specification, but all of these authorities, which are fairly uh, complex authorities already, will need to find ways to cooperate. Uh, And this is where public-private partnership will need to emerge. Some countries are doing better than others. Um, some countries are not doing it, <laughs> like in the UK. Um, and some countries have some somehow created third units. So where you have those the so-called security networks, where specialist people from each of these institutions meet, and they create a third unit, which is the port unit, and um, usually there is someone who will lead this unit. Uh, In Australia, this is, for example, led by Victoria Police, which is state police uh, in Melbourne. Uh, In uh, Montreal, instead, you have RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, so a federal border management uh, unit of the federal police. In in the United States, you have CBP, Customs and Border Control, so they are the ones who lead this partnership, so the ones who call the other to essentially discuss what needs to be done. So, this, without this partnership, the port security and policing would collapse because there is one massive, massive problem with securing and policing the port, which is that, with the exception of the UK in this case, the port remains, um, rented out. There is no other way of saying it. Now, I don't know uh, how many of the listers rent a a flat, but if you rent a flat, you know that people cannot enter in your flat, not even your leaseholder or your property owner, unless you allow them. So being allowed in the port premises is the main issue. You have to make sure that you can enter the port premises and not every single time knock at the door. Because if you knock at the door, you'll lose time. But the port is a weird space because it requires this constant negotiation between the public sector and the private sector and unless you have system in place to streamline this you'll never get out um, of the impasse and this happens on a daily basis it has to be smooth so that's the, the main the main struggle essentially
0: what are your experiences with that do you think usually it, it, it does work the the entrance of police or
1: uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, it's strange because obviously you have you can sense the tension all around. In every port I've visited, everyone tells you, oh, no, we work well with the port. And they usually name the port under the name of the terminal owner. We work well with um, DP Ward. We work well with whoever. And when you actually start scratching a little bit, um, you will see that this works well. It's not really uh, always the case, because the police would want to do more. They would want to stay inside the port, and they are—they don't—they are not uh, allowed to most of the time. So sometimes they sit outside, right outside. It's very curious to see. You have this massive. Um, let's say fencing around ports and then just outside you have the little building where the police sits or the custom sits so that they are very close to entering but not just inside um, and some other times instead is the opposite you have a very important person in every port terminal who is the port facility security officers the pfso so this is the, usually the head of security is someone who has undergone a certain specific training uh, and is supposed to be the person who decides on a daily basis who enters, who exits, who signs off the access sheet and the exit sheets and who oversees the whole uh, security, essentially, of the port. So, it's a very, very important person. It's the person you need, you need to get to if you want to enter the port. The person I needed to get if I wanted to enter the port as a researcher and you have to explain to them what you're doing. So they they are kind of like the king of the realm because without them, you can't enter. And usually the personality, the charisma or lack of charisma of these people is the one that creates problems. So you'll see... Um, place where for 20 years things went smoothly, there was a very good relationship and then the PFSO changes and the whole thing goes back to square one. So you see all these tensions and everyone is very diplomatic and everyone politically correct and tells you, oh, no, we have all the protocols in place. But then you can sense in their voice how this is not really the case. And um, it's uh, the police will always want to do more in the port and the PFSO does not want to let the police more because this scares away clients. If you have the police inside the port terminals, that's not does not look good. It looks like the port is not secure. So there is this constant balance um, in, in pretty much everywhere. And then you have the weirdest thing of all, which is where the UK, the England really, really tops off, which is that England has a private police force in ports, meaning that the employee, the security employee of the terminal owner are police officers, So they are sworn police officers. They have the same power of any other police officer in the country, but they are private employees. So they that's a very weird um, combination because obviously they do feel the duplicity of their role because uh, they, they have a private employee and a private, pers- private corporation that pays their paycheck, but at the same time, they are sworn to public safety and maintaining public peace. So it's not quite clear where they stand. More research should be done on that uh, for sure, but it's not going to be me because I found it extremely difficult as well. And let's not even get into how masculine this all is because that's a whole other story uh, as a female researcher.
0: Fascinating. Um, would you say that this, uh, because we so far we've spoken about the we've spoken about the the security part, the the officials so to say, and the, that kind of collaboration. Um, but you also mentioned a lot about um, uh, corruption in the book. Uh, do, would you say that this this uh, security industry no that the criminal industry mirrors this uh, security industry?
1: So, in a way, organized crime groups have to uh, learn how to get around the security infrastructure that each port puts in place. There's a very simple, uh, mm, let's say, principle of criminology, which is crime displacement. The more security you put up, the more criminal groups will move around that security um, for necessity. So you can never stop really the the crime flow. You can just divert it in a way. So the most important thing that criminal groups need to do uh, when using the ports, either as a gate or as an entry point or an exit point or just a transit point, is to have knowledge of someone who has knowledge of the port, meaning that there are um, individuals or somehow sometimes entire groups whose sole job is uh, to offer the know-how of the port security system to the criminal groups so one the specific example of that i can give is uh, the so-called west end gang in uh, montreal so montreal is peculiar in that sense because the it's the mm, group, the criminal group that is commonly associated to the port, meaning that they have the know-how of how the port works, uh, is solely there in the port to um, essentially act as a guarantor for other groups. So they do not import drugs. They do not uh, operate in any other uh, criminal activity. Their sole criminal activity is to branch out to bridge one uh, criminal group to the port. So they will be the one overseeing uh, activities uh, in the port premises. Uh, they will be the one uh, getting paid for a fee so that the their shipment of someone else goes through. So they will be essentially, they are the guardians in a way of the port. So this is a unique case, the one on Montreal, because normally you have each group has their own individuals in the port or one individual acts as a broker, let's say, for various others. But Montreal is specific because there is this clear identification of a criminal group whose only specialism is to give access to the port to other criminal groups. Uh, And they only can do that if they know and they follow how the security and the policing of the port premises evolve. They wouldn't be able to do it any other way. So they are either... Uh, port employees, or they are security officers, sometimes, or people very close to the above.
0: Fascinating. Yes. So, would, would you say um, th- th- does this tie in uh, to um, uh, the, the 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 union structure that sometimes is in place? I mean, viewers might remember the the images from um, uh, Baltimore in uh, in the Wire, where this uh, union, union group uh, collaborates with organized crime.
1: Yes, absolutely. And in fact, So in the book, uh, in chapter one, which was the chapter which was um, curated by Luca Storti, uh, Luca does mention uh, the role of unions, uh, specifically in relationship to the type of um, economic system in place in the different ports. So obviously ports are incredibly important nodes of the political economy of each uh, country and all the actors of this economy will play a role. In some um, economic system, specifically the liberal uh, economic system uh, unions have a very important role of balancing it, balancing out essentially the um, free reins of the liberal market in a way and protect obviously the workers uh, in the process. So their um, uh, let's say, relationship with the private sector is incredibly um, conflictual sometimes. So we saw this uh, in the US, it's very much the case, in Canada, still very much the case, um, but increasingly so also in Europe. So I was recently, this is not in the book, but I was recently in the port of Piraeus and um, there are three union workers in the Porto Piraeus, all of them very angry at uh, Costco, um, who is the new uh, owner of the Piraeus port uh, and terminal. So the conflictuality between the workers and the the port employers um, is very prominent in our analysis as well. Uh, It has definitely shaped what we saw in New York and what we saw in, in Montreal, also Melbourne. And it is where all the stories of organized crime somehow start. To the extreme of the US, where uh, organized crime groups, mafia type groups, tend to get uh, the governance of the um, unions. Essentially, by infiltrating the union, they manage to control the entire workforce. Uh, and this is something that the employers are scared of, because if, if port workers stop working or decide to point their feet... The port stops working, so meaning uh, that trade is is halted. So that can happen, and at the same time, there are many ways in which uh, the unions come into play in terms of manipulation by organized crime groups, in terms of infiltration by organized crime groups. So you have very different levels, but they all have to somehow um, they are acquire importance depending on how important the union system is in the country of destination. For example, in Australia, the unions uh, they run the port, the Painters and Dockers Union, which uh, is also the, um, I've learned the reason why there was a four-volume inquiry into organized crime at the port of Melbourne in, in the mid-'80s um, changed drastically since the mid-'80s. So, it's the, the, it went, the unions went through a reform. The union system went through a reform in the general um, economics of um, the state. So, it, it really depends on it has its, a history of its own and then within the history of the of labor relationship you will find also the port
0: this gives me the intuition that if you say that on the one hand more security measures only displace the crime and on the other hand the most of the crime in the ports starts with the unschooled labor um, and and troubles in in that that part of the of the system. Would you then say that actually the security issues in the port um, should be tackled through a kind of social or labor-related policy?
1: They can, they should actually. I think one of the suggestions that um, I'm currently exploring, uh, and we did discuss with my colleagues for the book, um, is that there is something that is usually gets forgotten um, when um, organized crime, countering organized crime policies uh, happen, um, and there is a lot of confusion on what organized crime looks like in ports. Hence the book, which is that so-called temperature checks of the labor workforce. Uh, Temperature checks means not necessarily looking at whether the employees are happy or not happy, but whether or not their conditions of labor are somehow um, leading to discontent, which gets systemic and therefore gets exploitable. And this is something that gets forgotten because there is always um, a misrepresentation of the role of port workers in organized crime you have uh, countries who will say, oh, no, these are a few bad apples that once in a while get corrupted and we get rid of the bad apples and the whole system gets fine, which is untrue. Um, or the opposite is true, where, oh, my God, this is everywhere. We can't possibly face it. All the port workers are inherently corrupted or corruptible. Therefore, let's just put more uh, controls in place because there is no way of saving saving them, which is obviously not true. Uh, but we saw that... Um, In certain countries, specifically more than others, controls over the workforce to avoid uh, criminal connections are taken obviously with another very conflictual in very conflictual manner. For example, New York City, New York uh, Harbor, has um, a very unique structure, which is the Waterfront Commission, which sits over two states, New York and New Jersey, because the Port of New York sits over two states, New York and New Jersey. So this Waterfront Commission exists since 1954, the year um, before the movie On the Waterfront was uh, came out, and it's already featuring in the movie The Waterfront. With a very young Marlon Brando. And the idea of the Waterfront Commission is that everyone, whoever will work at the port uh, in any, um, let's say, job, will have to undergo through an intelligence scrutiny, intelligence led scrutiny by the Commission to check whether there are organized crime ties. The, it's been over 50, 70 years, almost 70 years since the commission started its work. And there are, there are millions of reasons why New Jersey doesn't want this commission. But the idea is that on the side of workers, um, is perceived as a threat to work. Uh, it's been perceived as a threat to the diversification of the labor force, because there seems to be some claims of racism which are... Unproven, but you know, still claims, um, and at the same time, it it doesn't even um, please uh, the the, um, the terminals in a way because it still um, hinders the speed of uh, recruitment. So. That's one way of doing it. So to make sure that everyone undergoes a certain check just for organized crime or even worse, like um, Canada does, where a a ministry of Transport Canada will run the checks. Over everyone who works in ports and airports, and we run basically just a checklist: whether if you are, if your brother has been involved in organized crime, you can't get any work in in the port, no matter what. So this obviously brings on the union and the claims of um, racism and uh, classism and all of those issues, uh, and even more. Uh, Increases the conflictuality between the port workers and the perceived controls that someone in the employee in the employer realm is making. So the temperature checks um, are important not just to catch the um, occasional person who gets corrupted because they need money to do something, so the occasional dockers who just does it once in a while, but to make sure that the more systemic infiltration into certain structures, including the unions, is not inherently conducive to organized crime uh, influence, is not already calling for it in, just in spite, to spite the employer. So it's it's very complicated, but it doesn't it never really features on any um, organized crime, uh, let's say, counter strategy somehow.
0: One of the um, well, one of the recommendations that you give in the book is that uh, the the solutions um, for security issues in ports are, are always uh, or should always be very localized. Um, but at the same time, me, as a person who has hardly been in any of the, of the larger ports, um, I have the feeling that the ports throughout the world look more uh, like each other than, uh, than, for instance, a port in the Netherlands looks like the rest of the Netherlands. Um, wh- why then uh, these highly localized uh, solutions are needed? Is that culturally dependent, for instance, are, are Asian ports uh fundamentally different from from the ones in Australia? Or is there another dimension?
1: That's a very good point and question. Um, both are true. So all ports look similar, and at the same time, all ports look different. As someone told me once, when you've seen one port, You've only really seen one port, which means essentially that in order, if you really want to know how the port uh, environment really works, it takes really a long time. They might appear very similar to one another in the same way as uh, some of the basic. Um, features of the so-called world cities look similar to one another. New York is very similar to London for certain macro dynamics or to Paris or to Rome. But then when you actually go to Rome or go to Paris or go to New York, you do see the differences. So it's the same idea. So the ports are the most globalized of our um, economic tools. Uh, are probably like airports; um, they are meant to be recognizable to everyone who sets foot from everywhere in the world, at the first glimpse. Uh, I've recently been to the port of Cartagena with the port facility security officer telling me, "Look, we are meant to look exactly like Cartagena Costa in,
0: the- in uh, Colombia."
1: Cartagena in Colombia. So we are talking here about the biggest port of the Caribbean in Colombia, and they are modeled, security-wise and also non-security-wise, on Rotterdam. And having seen both, if you drop me from from the sky on one of them. I wouldn't know necessarily where I am. They look exactly the same apart from the context around them and the fact that in one case you have the sea on one in one way or you see the skyline on the other way. So they look contextually dissimilar, but inside they are very similar. So this is uh, very true, and there is, this is the reason why all the port security regulations eventually do look um, are necessarily the same, there has to be a way, a language that is shared across port security officers around the world, usually in English, but not necessarily, so to share the experiences. However, when it comes to organized crime, this is where things get different and this is where the cultural element comes in, because the organized crime scenario will change just outside the port premises it will matter whether or not organized crime groups um, or any other criminal groups that uses the port has certain types of features outside of the port, whether they exist in the city behind the port, whether they're coming from somewhere else, whether they are instead just forming for the sake of mm, the criminal venture of choice. To give you an example, I was expecting Montreal uh, to... Uh, show a very high level of engagement from uh, the bikies, the outlaw motorcycle gangs, who are heavily engaged in cocaine in Quebec, in importation of cocaine, I was expecting them to use, to traffic this cocaine through the Port of Montreal. Surprise, they don't. They do not use the Port of Montreal. They prefer to ship uh, cocaine And when I say they prefer, I mean that occasionally they also do use Montreal, but mostly they don't. They use the port of Vancouver, which is on the other side of the country. And it takes six days to bring it from Vancouver to Montreal. But their uh, contact in Vancouver is probably safer and their route is probably quicker and safer from Vancouver to Montreal than it would be to move things directly to Montreal. Now, what does this tell me is that these groups uh, from Montreal will have to organize their criminal network in a way that makes it possible for them to act through the port of Vancouver instead, which is their, you know, inside contacts, outside contacts, it doesn't matter. But this also means that if I go and look at the port of Vancouver, I'll find this very odd group that does not live there but uses the port nevertheless. Instead, the Port of Montreal seems to be particularly attractive for um, criminal groups in North New York, because it is easier to move things across the border between um, Canada and US than it would be for them to move it from New York City, where the control over the territory of the port is much, much higher from other criminal groups. So the thing with with organized crime is that it doesn't necessarily go in the intuitive way. So if you and I choose a port because it's the closest to our home and it makes more sense to have a quicker journey and a cheaper journey and a whatever, safer journey for my, let's say, furniture to go from the Netherlands to the US if I decide to move there why wouldn't I use the port next door to mine? But for organized crime, it doesn't work like that. So that's why uh, you need a contextual and local understanding of how organized crime works in the region around the port to make sure you understand certain choices in terms of uh, how The poor system is exploited, especially for trafficking, but not just for trafficking. A whole other story is when a criminal group does not do trafficking, but they just do the corruption at the higher level or the union governance. That's an even more localized issue. And in that sense, um, it has nothing to do with the previous one. Sometimes you might have more than one organized crime group active in the same port. So the port trade system is the same everywhere. The port security system is going towards homogeneity everywhere. But organized crime is not homogeneous everywhere. So that is the changing thing. So both our statements can be correct.
0: Thank you for that. Um, in your opinion, when we uh, when we look at the the worldwide port system and the um, and the organized crime in there, um, well, maybe to say so, the GITOC, uh, the Global Initiative Against Trans- International Organized Crime, one of their 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 major c- concerns on uh, when it comes to organized crime is that they, they say that the okay, global dr- drug trade is the depressing the issue, perhaps. Um, if, you, if you look at the, the, the port system specifically, what is your biggest worry, let's say, when it comes to sec- security for the foreseeable future?
1: Oh, that's a, t- a tough one. Um, I think my main issue is the amount of data that we generate. Uh, Not because I'm afraid that someone will read my emails, I don't really care, Uh, but because the manipulation of data uh, is something that we can't control. There is no way. Uh, I don't don't do research on big data and I don't do research on the management of big data, but I think that in terms of security, that's the challenge, Uh, the production of data, whether it's uh, for trade, whether it's for... um, uh, personal sensitive data, whether there is for, um, you know, the um, understanding of uh, the world's connection or political connection, I think that is something that uh, can be easily manipulated in ways that are not even criminal, in a way, or criminalized yet. And I'm not advocating for more criminalization, but I'm advocating probably for less security in a way. Because the security generates more data, the need for security generates more data, we store more data because we are obsessed with security and we think that by storing more data we uh, can somehow control it but i'm not too sure this is the case and we've seen this during the the, the pandemic with the halt of port trade and um, and the never ending anxiety the ports at this stage um, um, share about cyber attacks and uh, cyber terror attacks, which are very unlikely, but eventually, if you think of the amount of work that goes behind the scenes for storing all the incredible amount of information that each port receives every day about shipment and people and movement, is it's just where all this data go and, and because most of the time it is not really needed for security, Uh, the way we think of it, um, is probably where uh, we are clearly doing something wrong. Um, so I think that's, that's really where, where the problem lies. And then obviously with the, with drugs, drugs is a whole other story. I mean, I'm for, um, I'm looking forward to seeing how Canada is planning on legalizing cocaine, cause that will be a pathbreaking, <laughs> uh, situation. Um, I'm for it. I'm definitely for it, not because I consume cocaine, I never consumed cocaine in my life. I don't intend to, but I believe in free will, um, to these matters, but at the same time, this will give a massive blow to organized crime, and ports uh, will have to change yet again their understanding of security and
0: illicit trade. That's an uh, exciting experiment, indeed, uh, that's, uh, that will take place in Canada. Um, so, no, I, I think you, you make a very interesting point about the data collection. Um, specifically, do you mean that the that the risk is that the, the attack surface in, in ports uh, has become become larger? Um, would you say that the, the risk is lies in the field of these cyber attacks, or is it um, more a risk that the that the that, that there is some kind of um, negative side effects of the of this uh, hyper surveillance um, that, for instance, thwarts the, the World Trade or, or, or endangers the um, the workers?
1: Well, I think it's an effect of the so-called risk society, uh, which is a very, a wonderful, now old concept, 1992, 1991, I think it was, by Ulrich Beck, uh, who obviously was a sociologist and he saw things in a bigger, uh, in bigger macro changes. And we are definitely living in the worst of the risk societies ever where data is collected just in case it's needed at some point. Um, and the, Responses I had from the ports, and this is something that we discussed for the book, it is uh, in our conclusion of the book, is that everyone is preparing for the worst case scenario all the time in ports. And the worst case scenario in ports is definitely something related to cyber terrorism, whether if you halt a whole port system. we've seen this. We've seen it when the the evergreen um, was somehow blocked in the middle of the Suez Canal. If one port enters in a complete blockage, the rest of the world is going to collapse. So we are everyone is very, very sure of this and very aware of the implications of a cyber attack in, let's say, one of the nodal points. And by cyber attack, yes, it means essentially being able to control from remote and to held hostage essentially the information that each port is is managing. This is dramatic for the clients, for the um, governments, for whoever uh, essentially. So this this is the nightmare. And they, are, they do drills and they do uh, courses and trainings and, and the risk of this is so tangible and the, is essentially the idea ingrained in the fact that if we do not hyper surveil, if we do not do this hyper surveillance, we run zero chance. We have zero chance of making it out of this alive. But the opposite is also true, (laughs) because all the time that we spend with this, uh, not that I'm not saying that one shouldn't worry about this, uh, is essentially the same time with whom that we essentially spend by giving ammunition to whoever is inclined to do to run these cyber attacks. If the, all the data that we store and all the system we rely upon in order to be able to resist a cyber attack are the same infrastructures and data that will be used in case of a cyber attack. So I'm not going back to the pen and paper, of course, that's not the point. But at the same time, I feel like the risk of the threat is definitely overshadowing the logics of the response. Um, but this is not for just for ports. Ports are just the way you do see it, because when something, anything, happens in ports, going from the pandemic to the evergreen and the Suez Canal, the rest of the, the it's actually the only economy of the world where capitalism is at its at its full blown power. There is really no, there is only the invisible hand of the market. There is no one else. It's the most non regulated um, economic system that we have—the one of port, where one port depends on the other, and you don't understand why unless you are an expert on these these issues. So. Again, uh, it's an egg, egg chicken-and-egg situation, and um, I don't think I have the answer, but definitely criminology has been looking at, this, uh, at the effects of the over-surveillance um, for anything, from human rights to personal safety, for ontological insecurity, this idea that we're constantly you know, insecure because we are constantly under attack. Not sure. And then, yeah, we, it, this all connects to broader things, but yeah, I, I'm not sure we should go there.
0: <laughs> maybe maybe for next time, but thanks for the elaborate answer. Maybe a final question. So you already uh, alluded that um, to your new book coming out in two days. Uh, could you maybe tell us a tiny bit about that? What, what's it going to be?
1: Yeah. So the, the book is called Chasing the Mafia, Drangheta, Memories and Journeys. And it's, um, again, with Bristol University Press, but this time is a non-fiction book. So it's, uh, I would say, 60-70% academic, 30 40 trade. Uh, and it's basically the kind of research that I've r- always run on the side. There is a little bit of my research on ports even there, uh, specifically in the port of Gioia Tauro. Uh, in uh, in Calabria, where I was born. And that's been basically my first port, even if I wasn't looking for it. uh, It's been, I grew up around it. And it's basically an idea. And the idea of the book is to try and do a little bit of self-ethnography and uh, mix it with real ethnography that I've done over the years in my fieldwork in Australia, Canada, US, including my fieldwork for ports. But always still chasing mafia stuff Uh, and the result should be a personal book. It's written in first uh, person. It's about my childhood memories, my fieldwork diaries um, and eventually my professional challenges as an academic researching these topics that are very close to my personal life in a way. Uh, So it's it's a mix of voices. Um, The idea was to mix the researcher with the child and the professional uh, academic with, um, let's say, the, um, someone who tries to make sense of history of the place where she comes from. So it's, uh, yeah, in two days, it's going to come out in Europe and then Australia and then Canada. So let's see how that, how that goes. But this was eventually written even before Ports and Crime and Security. It just took longer to publish it because it, it was more problematic in a way.
0: We've got something to look forward to. Thank you once again, uh, Anna Sergi. (laughs) And uh, who knows, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.